Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to have you with us today. As all of our listeners are aware, one of my favorite subjects for stories is the paranormal, which involves a wide number of subjects, from UFOs to ghosts, portals, strange places, and cryptids like Bigfoot and Goatman, to unexplained events and unsolved mysteries. For armchair adventure, these subjects are hard to top. But there's a growing number of people who have been taking the next step, actually seeking adventure and thrills, and traveling to the sites where paranormal events or strange sightings and occurrences have taken place, and these few hardy souls are called legend trippers. Now, I just call them hardy souls, but there are many different types of legend trippers. Some legend trippers are adolescents with healthy curiosities seeking a rite of passage into maturity by experiencing what many would consider frightening visits to scary places in their locales. Every town has its legends, from the haunted vacant house on Elm Street to the place where someone, it is rumored, died an unexpected and gruesome death. Then there's the nude legend trippers, families, parents and kids, just out for a day of adventure with maybe a little history thrown in, or trying to make a boring road trip a little more exciting and educational. What I'm covering today is a mix of places in the U.S., mostly family-rated, that have a little history or story attached, just to give you some ideas. We'll follow up in a couple of weeks with an episode called Legend Tripping Worldwide, and that'll open your eyes to a lot of really scary places. There are a number of books on the market now that offer tips on how to get the most out of your weekend foray. And there are lots of suggestions out there on Reddit, YouTube, and Twitter of places to go to get some thrills. One book reviewer left this comment behind. Legend Tripping to me is the ultimate adventure of exploring and investigating the mystery of the unknown on your own. This is an excellent and entertainingly detailed book for those of you who are curiously enthusiastic about different fringe subjects, such as Bigfoot and all the other cryptozoology entities, haunted sites, anything paranormal, UFOs, lost treasure legends, historic sites containing local lore, not necessarily paranormal, and the list goes on. The author, this person writes, a retired Army person with 21 years of service in the military, demonstrates the tools and equipment specifically needed for your exploration journey, and explains every detail on how to search for evidence while safely learning to survive in the great outdoors. He makes it an important part of using the tool of critical thinking to skillfully analyze the site and evidence he's investigating, and shows you how. The reviewer continues, I found this to be a well-balanced book to be enjoyed both by the young and old alike, especially a young-at-heart adventurer grandfather like me. I greatly recommend this fun but educative book. And there are a lot of advice givers out there. Some say, don't mess with murder sites or satanic stuff. Some also say, don't get involved with people who want to perform rituals and sacrifice animals. And yes, those people are out there. Some say, go only at night and don't go armed. Some trippers have gotten shot. And that's true. One legend tripper was fatally shot in Lincoln, Nebraska, as a result of a frenzy of fear and panic created within a group of legend trippers, the same outing causing the shooting and wounding of a woman whose house had become the subject of the trip. Others see a visit to an historic site as a chance to learn some history. Battlefields like Gettysburg or Antietam are a good example. I'm going to list a number of popular sites in the U.S., and a good place to start is right in the middle, in Indiana, on a cliff overlooking the Ohio River. One popular and pretty innocent site is Captain McCary's Vault in New Albany, Indiana, which is located on a cliff overlooking the Ohio River across from Louisville, Kentucky. As the legend goes, Captain McCary was once a steamboat captain on the Ohio River in the mid-1800s. 
The captains of steamboats made pretty good money in those days, and knew every inch of the portions of the river that they traveled. They had to, to avoid getting hung up on sandbars, sunken branches, or sunken rocks that could cut wide tears in hulls and sink the boats. It was a competitive business, and McCary was known for his unstable relationships with other captains in the area. It's said that Captain McCary built this vault overlooking the river so he could keep watch over it during both his life and afterlife. His instructions given for his death included his being entombed standing up so he could look out of the portal window in the vault and curse all the other passing boats. After his death, it was said that the other captains would blow their horns as they passed the vault to ward off his curse. It's a steep climb from the river's edge up to the vault, but doable, says one grandpa-grandson team. There's a lot of history to steamboats, which marked a time in America when steamboats carried most of the manufactured goods to and from cities on rivers and bays. They were prone to boiler explosions and subject to the whims of nature and the tricks played by shifting sandbars. But they were popular for travel during the mid to late 1800s. The first steamboat on the Ohio, by the way, was the New Orleans, which steamed from Pittsburgh all the way to New Orleans in 1811, waking up a lot of people to the fact that river travel was a safe and effective way to move goods and people. Are the passing boats still acknowledging the vault, you ask? You'll have to go yourself to find out. The closest parking is at the intersection of 111 and 211, and the climb is 400 feet. And there are a number of gravestone legends out there. I recall the story we did on Edgar Allan Poe's gravestone cenotaph in Baltimore and the mysterious visitor who, on the anniversary of Poe's death, every January 19th, would leave three roses and a bottle of cognac at the gravesite. And this went on for 80 years without anyone ever identifying the person, or, we assume, persons, responsible. Once people started setting traps for the midnight visitor, the visits ended. The story of the Black Aggie statue in Washington, D.C. is an interesting story and makes an interesting side trip for legend trippers on the East Coast, if not necessarily a scary one. Here's the legend. When General Felix Agnes, the publisher of the Baltimore American, died in 1925, he was buried in Pikesville Druid Ridge Cemetery. The sculptor of the statue, which was placed atop his grave, actually copied the statue of another artisan who had earlier created the figure of a woman wearing a shroud and expressing grief to adorn the gravestone of the wife of the grandson of John Quincy Adams. Her husband Adams would not give a name to the monument, but a name was later given to the excellently done statue, possibly by Mark Twain, who was known to have visited it in 1906 just to admire its craftsmanship. The statue was actually unnerving just to look at. It was that good. It had a haunting look, people said. General Felix Agnes had been a brigadier general in the Civil War, a title which he earned at the age of 26, having prior experience fighting for Garibaldi in Italy before coming to New York, where he became a sculptor for Tiffany's. In 1905, Agnes began construction of a family monument in Druid Ridge Cemetery for he and his wife Anne. It was during this time that he purchased Black Aggie, and then had a monument and pedestal created that would closely match the setting of the Adams Memorial in Washington. The first burial at the site was that of the general's mother, who had been brought over from France. A year later, the widow of the artist Augustus St. Gaudens sent a letter to Henry Adams to inform him of the poor reproduction that had been done of the statue they now call Grief, which was now resting in Druid Ridge. There was nothing they could do legally about the theft of the design, so St. Gaudens' widow traveled to Baltimore to see the site for herself. She discovered a nearly identical statue, seated on a similar stone, but with the name Agnes inscribed on the base. She also noted that the stone was a nondescript gray color, and not the pink granite of the original. 
The Baltimore site also did not have the bench and the rest of the stonework as the original Washington gravesite had. After seeing the gravesite, Mrs. St. Gaudens declared publicly that General Agnes must be a good deal of a barbarian to copy a work of art in such a way, without permission. General Agnes quickly responded, claiming to be the innocent victim of unscrupulous art dealers. The widow then filed a suit against the art dealers that had arranged for the sculpture to be built. The general also filed and won $4,500, keeping the statue. When his wife Anne died in 1922, she was laid to rest at the feet of the statue, now called Aggie, and he followed three years later. It wasn't long before the statue proved to have a life of its own. Late-night visitors claimed that the statue's eyes would glow red at midnight. Other persons said that the spirits of the dead rose to gather round her on certain nights, and still others said that some persons were struck blind by looking into her eyes. Black Aggie became an urban legend. Then a local college fraternity decided to include Black Aggie in their initiation rites. The pledges were ordered to spend the night in Black Aggie's arms, and as the college legend goes, one of them was crushed by her hands as he lay sleeping in a cold embrace. The stories attracted more visitors, until finally some of them began abusing the monument. Finally, the Angus family donated the statue to the Smithsonian, and they placed it in hiding, perhaps fearing its powers? Who knows? At some point, the staff at the Smithsonian decided to part with the statue, giving it to the National Museum of American Art, where she was again put into storage, until fate stepped in in 1996 in the form of a young Baltimore writer named Sarah Terjong, who did a story on Black Aggie for a small newspaper. She was determined to track down the statue and put out a number of inquiries, which finally rewarded her with a call from the General Services Administration telling her, Guess what? Your statue is on display at the Federal Courts Building in Washington, D.C., in the rear courtyard of the Dolly Madison House. Yes, that's the same house that Dolly, in 1814, just a few steps ahead of the attacking British, had rushed into to grab one of her most prized possessions, a portrait of George Washington that she didn't want the Brits to get hold of. So the next time you visit Washington, D.C., make a stop by the Dolly Madison House and visit the rear courtyard, and now you'll know the story... Of Black Aggie. And by the way, Black Aggie may be gone from Druid Ridge Cemetery, but she's certainly not forgotten. We still have people coming to Druid Ridge asking for Black Aggie all the time, said one of the cemetery spokesmen in an interview. I don't think there's a week that goes by when we don't get a call about it. The Angus gravesite is well cared for today and shows little sign of the desecration of the past. Grass grows now in the place where for many years it could not. The only lingering evidence of Black Aggie is a chipped area on the granite pedestal and a faint shadow where she once rested. At least, that's the only lingering presence that can be seen. Some say there is more. Who knows? Whether the Angus gravesite was ever haunted or not, Black Aggie has left an indelible mark on not only Druid Ridge Cemetery, but the annals of the supernatural in America as well. And she makes a good visit today for legend trippers, during museum hours, of course. Then there's Goatman's Grave in Rolla, Missouri. Says one visitor, Between Rolla and St. James is Pine Hill Cemetery, home of the legend of the Goatman. This area is also known as Spook Hollow by the residents of St. James. Most visitors to this cemetery after dark have reported seeing phantom cars that fly down the road and then disappear. Photos taken in the area won't develop, and flashlights stop working altogether. Down the other side of the road lie the remains of an old bus, Red glowing eyes have been seen from the bus, although some believe it is a light refraction from the broken glass. The bus apparently at one time was the home of a vagrant psychopath. 
Many visitors described feelings of being watched and uneasiness around the bus area. Could the spirit of that psychopath be watching from the bus? Or is it light refraction? No one knows for sure. Other phenomena include the strange footprints of the goat man. Legend has it that the goat man was born to a witch who practiced Satanism. She is supposedly buried in the cemetery as well. Strange human voices have been heard there too. People who don't respect the cemetery have been known to leave the cemetery with burn marks on their clothes and scratch marks on their arms and legs. There's also a local man who takes it upon himself to scare away trespassers. Many attribute the phantom cars to him. He is considered dangerous and not to be messed with. Maybe he's protecting the secrets of the goat man's grave. How Goatman ended up in a Missouri grave is anyone's guess, as Goatman has been spotted by teenagers out parking in Texas, Maryland, and to a large degree Kentucky, where he goes by the name of the Pope Lick Monster. He is half man and half goat, and as legend has it, his bottom half is goat, and he likes to chase women. We covered him one time in an urban legend story. As to his current location, for legend trippers, maybe Pine Hill Cemetery, maybe any woodsy area at night, Bring a flashlight and an apple, as goats like apples. Our story will return right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. A favorite of legend trippers is ghost towns, except that these are only found in the West for the most part. But wait, there's a ghost town in New Jersey, and it's called Ong's Hat, O-N-G apostrophe S, Ong's Hat, and it's full of legend and it's said to be pretty spooky besides. It's located in Pemberton Township, Burlington County, New Jersey, on Magnolia Road, which is County Road 644 west of the four-mile circle where New Jersey Route 72 intersects with Route 70. Apparently its original was called Ong's Hut, but the word changed to hat over the years. The name Ong predates the Revolutionary War, with a location called Ong's appearing on a 1778 map of Hessian encampments there in New Jersey. According to Forgotten Towns of Southern New Jersey by Henry Charlton Beck, Ong's Hat was a real village. A well-known folk story attributes the name to a local man who was a fixture at local dances, wooing women with his suave attire, especially his silk hat. The surname Ong was common among early Pine Barren settlers, and one of the earliest settlers was named Jacob Ong. One story of the origin of the name is that at one such dance, a jealous lover stomped on his hat, ruining it, and in frustration Ong tossed it in the air, where it caught on a high branch of a pine tree. The hat remained there for many years, serving as a landmark which identified the small village. At least four other versions of this legend circulate. One version simply ends with his hat being stomped on, while the most widely circulated one ends with him throwing it in the tree. The other two hold that Ong was a tavern keeper who either painted a silk hat on his sign or threw his hat into a tree after getting angry with a woman. Ong's Hat was a lively town and served as a social center for the surrounding area. It was known for the availability of alcohol, and one of the first arrests of a bootlegger occurred at Ong's Hat. In his 1944 book Jersey Genesis, Beck says that a Polish couple, the Chininskis, moved to Ong's Hat in the early 20th century. By that time, only seven residents remained. The Chininskis disappeared soon after they moved there. Years later, hunters found a female skeleton at Ong's Hat, which police speculated was that of Mrs. Chininsky. Tracking Mr. Chininsky to New York, but unable to prove anything, Burlington County Sheriff Ellis Parker kept the skull in his office for many years as a reminder of the unsolved case. By 1936, Ong's hat was still on the maps, but nothing was there except a clearing, an abandoned shed, 
and bits of brick and roofing suggesting houses had once been there. When Beck visited, he found only Eli Freed, a 79-year-old farmer who had moved to the area from Chicago. In the foreword to the 1961 edition of his book, Beck reports that Freed no longer lived at Ong's Hat and that additional legends concerning the village had emerged. The town of Ong's Hat was the setting for a, for a series of fictional conspiracy theory-themed stories from the 1980s onwards, known as Ong's Hat, in which a group of scientists was able to travel to a parallel dimension from a site in the township making it possibly an inspiration for the TV series Stranger Things. And lastly, here's one of those footnotes that I enjoy so much. Ong's Hat appeared in an episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, one of my favorite radio detective shows, which is heard here often at 1001 Radio Days. One of the most visited legend tripper sites is located in the small town of central Utah, about one hour north of St. George. It's called the Mountain Meadows Massacre Site, and it's rumored to be one of the most haunted places in the nation. In the opening scene of the recent series 1883, shown on the streaming service Paramount Plus, and starring Tim McGraw and Faith Hill, a massacre is taking place which pretty well copies the details of what we know about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. The Mountain Meadows Massacre played a tragic part in Utah history that many still reflect upon today. While the story is heartbreaking and awful, it is creepy and spooky as well, and its location is said to be haunted by many. Here's the history. The massacre involved the Baker-Fancher wagon train, which was made up of about 130 men, women, and children from Arkansas who were traveling through Utah to California. The wagon train, many say confidently, was attacked by a group of Mormon militia on September 11, 1857, although Mormon authorities have denied it ever since, while helping to purchase land and memorials for the purpose of honoring of the dead. During the attack, between 120 and 140 men, women, and children were slaughtered. As the story goes, the Mormon militia fabricated a story, blaming the Paiute for the massacre. They hastily buried the bodies in shallow graves, which were promptly dug up by coyotes and other wild animals. Within a few days of the massacre, bodies and body parts were scattered all over two miles and left to rot in the sun. The youngest members of the party were spared, and the 17 surviving children all of whom were under the age of seven, were adopted by local Mormon families. When the children's relatives from Arkansas attempted to take the children back home, they were initially refused. It took two years, an intervention from the U.S. Army, for the children to be returned to their relatives. News of the massacre made national headlines, and people all over the country were horrified. There was an ink drawing of the victims' bodies which was placed on the cover of Harper's Weekly, and that had a huge effect on the public conscience. After the initial outrage, nearby settlers collected the most obvious body parts and buried them, mostly in two mass graves. Throughout the years since the massacre, many visitors to this area report that it's haunted. Mostly people report an eerie feeling of being watched, but some say that they hear the cries of children, women screaming, and men shouting. Since the dead weren't properly buried, it would make sense that the pioneers who were butchered so violently would not be at rest. A few visitors have reported seeing a woman walking across the meadow, acting as though she's searching for something. Perhaps her children? Others report seeing school-aged children running through the fields laughing. These aren't the only reports of paranormal activity at that site. There are a few accounts of an older man seen in broad daylight at the memorial, sobbing. He's wearing clothing from the 1800s and is thought to be the ghost of John D. Lee, the man who was executed by firing squad for the massacre. Lee was the only man punished for the crimes, 
and historians believed he was a scapegoat to divert attention from other officials who knew about, ordered, and orchestrated the massacre of so many innocent people. If you've never visited the Mountain Meadows Massacre, take time to stop by this memorial. It's located off U.S. Highway 18, about an hour north of St. George, from what I understand. One legend tripper suggested if you sit quietly and listen, you just might hear the voices of the dead on the wind. In California, one of the most famous haunted houses that you can tour is the Winchester Mystery House. Their website, thewinchestermysteryhouse.com, puts it this way. Haunted legends and supernatural lore are well-suited to the Winchester Mystery House. Under construction for 38 years by Sarah Winchester to allegedly appease the spirits of those lost to the Winchester rifle, the house has been named one of Time Magazine's Top 10 Most Haunted Houses in America. Both guests and employees claim to have had real-life paranormal experiences. Let's delve into some of those ghostly visitations and the types of hauntings that they may represent. As legends pass down through the years, there are three types of haunting stories conjured from the ominously long hallways of Sarah's estate. So-called intelligent hauntings, residual hauntings, and shadow figures. Luckily, we've seen or heard no evidence of poltergeists, the often malevolent members of the spirit realm. Residual hauntings. In this type of haunting, a spiritual playback is stuck on repeat. A moment from the past is played back over and over again like a video on a loop. The events played back may be traumatic or life-changing to the person who experienced them, or they could be routine tasks the person performed many times, like stepping up to a window. Purportedly experienced in the grand ballroom and the chilly basement of the estate, these hauntings involve the famous wheelbarrow ghost working on the fireplace or pushing a wheelbarrow full of ash or coal. The worker on the far right, known as Clyde, is a popular resident at the Winchester estate. Then there's intelligent hauntings. In this type of haunting, there seems to be a consciousness behind the paranormal act and the spirit is attempting to interact with the living world. Usually, there are no more than gentle tugs on shirts or skirts during tours, but longtime maintenance worker Denny reports that one morning, after entering the water tower, he heard the patter of footsteps above. He ascended to let the trespasser know the three-story structure was off-limits, but the footsteps always seemed to be one step ahead of him, and one floor above. His search culminated on the roof, with no one in sight. Then there are shadowy figures. The most commonly reported supernatural occurrence is the appearance of a shadowy, human-shaped manifestation. What seems like an, are my eyes playing tricks on me? moment, may sometimes feel too real to ignore. Shadow figures or shadowy shapes that resemble people are purported to be seen roaming around corners, down long hallways, and appearing in windows. The Winchester House is located at 525 South Winchester Boulevard in San Jose, California. For ghost hunters, there's no shortage of places to go, but I'll name a few here if you're looking for ideas. The Marshall House Hotel in Savannah, Georgia, may appear every bit the genteel southern hotel with its Greek Revival architecture, cast-iron balcony, and elegantly appointed rooms. But during the Civil War, the Marshall House served as a Union hospital. As we know, medicine in those days could be pretty gruesome, with plenty of limbs having to be amputated. And sure enough, construction workers renovating the hotel in the 1990s found a grisly stash of amputated limbs beneath the floorboards. That explains some of the eerie sightings of ghosts wandering hallways and foyers, perhaps in search of their missing limbs. Ghostly children have made their presence known as well by biting people, laughing, and running down the halls. 
"'Some guests have reported walking to an apparition "'pressing their hand against their forehead, "'as if taking their temperature. "'There are also reports of a ghost cat, "'as well as the spirit of Uncle Raymond's author Joel Chandler Harris, "'who sometimes can be heard tapping on his typewriter. "'Then there's Bloody Lane and Tetum. "'Even the U.S. Department of Transportation "'has declared Bloody Lane, "'centerpiece of the Civil War's bloodiest day of battle, "'on September 7, 1862, "'on Antietam Creek, "'near the small town of Sharpsburg, Maryland, "'to be haunted. "'After all, some 23,000 men were wounded, "'killed, or missing in action by the end of the day. "'The lane is always church quiet, "'no matter how many people are around. "'Visitors walking along have heard phantom gunfire "'and smell gunpowder, "'and some have reported seeing Confederate soldiers "'who seem to be reenactors, "'until they disappear.' The most famous sighting there was by schoolboys who heard singing that sounded like a Christmas carol, later determined to be a Gaelic battle cry, Fach Abelach, or Clear the Way. Then there's Fort Monroe in Hampton, Virginia. I've been to Fort Monroe a few times, and this is definitely reported to have its ghost, including that of Robert E. Lee, who supervised its construction. This imposing southern fort in Hampton, Virginia, evaded Union capture throughout the Civil War, though after the war it was used to house the Confederate president, Jefferson Davis, as a prison. Every evening he was escorted for a walk along the ramparts where his wife watched from a nearby house to ensure he was okay. Today, visitors have reported seeing Davis's ghost strolling those very ramparts, while the window from which his wife stood vigil vibrates. He's also been spotted in his cell while she has been seen roaming the grounds in search of her husband. But they aren't the only ghosts there. Fleeting orbs and strange mists have mysteriously appeared, and the sounds of hoofbeats and voices have been heard, including a little girl calling for a cat, Greta, which also has been spotted in ghost-like form. There's also a lady in white who appears on the boardwalk, thought to be the wife of a ship captain who murdered her when he caught her having an affair. In Chicago, a post office stands now, where Murder Castle once stood, and many say the basement of that post office is haunted. Although the hotel no longer exists, the sight of it does. If you're what they call a sensitive, you would probably feel very strange being on or near that site. And just so you know, there's a grassy knoll near that post office that was once a part of the hotel site. Have you ever heard of Murder Castle? This is the story. If you go to the corner of 63rd and Wallace Streets in the Englewood community of Chicago today, you'll find a U.S. post office. The post office is a modest, somewhat institutional yellow brick building one of many built during the New Deal era under President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The Chicago Transit Authority Green Line runs on an elevated trestle just behind the post office, while a weathered concrete freight train embankment runs just to the east. An eagle carved in stone hangs over the front doors of the post office, while a sign with three yellow triangles evokes a pastime of menacing uncertainty, denoting a fallout shelter in the building. The post office does not stand perfectly on the footprint of that earlier building, however. Tony Zabelski of Chicago Haunting's Ghost Tours says it would have encompassed the eastern part of the present-day post office footprint and the grassy knoll that separates the post office from the freight train embankment. That earlier building is most infamously known as the Murder Castle. We don't know exactly how many people H.H. H. Holmes, one of America's first serial killers, murdered in the building around the time of the World's Columbian Exposition a few miles to the east in Jackson Park in 1893, but its horrors are the stuff of legend albeit subject to a challenging task of separating fact from myth. We interviewed the great-grandson of H.H. H. Holmes a few years ago when he wrote a book called The American Ripper, claiming that he believed his grandfather, while in London, 
was known as Jack the Ripper, and he presents a pretty convincing story. The Crime Museum tells us that H.H. H. Holmes was born Herman Webster Mudgett in New Hampshire. He graduated from high school early and attended medical school at the University of Michigan, where the Crime Museum says the story is he stole cadavers from the school's laboratory, disfigured or burned them, and then planted the bodies to suggest they'd been killed in accidents, while taking out insurance policies on the deceased people in question and collecting the money. Yeah, he was a piece of work. Holmes moved to Chicago around 1885 after finishing medical school and began working at a pharmacy under the name of Dr. Henry Howard Holmes. The pharmacy appears to have been located on the northwest corner of 63rd and Wallace Streets, where an Aldi store with a vast parking lot can now be found. The commonly heard story goes that the drugstore was owned by an elderly man with terminal cancer named Dr. E.S. Holton, whose wife took over the store when he died. Holmes went on to buy the store from Dr. Holton's wife, the legend claims. Mrs. Holton disappeared, and Holmes claimed to everyone that she'd moved to California, and she was never heard from again, as the story goes. The implication here is that most believe Holmes probably killed her. Holmes took over the pharmacy and had the building that became known as the Murder Castle constructed across the street between 1889 and 1891 in preparation for the World's Fair, which was coming to Chicago, along with thousands of -of out-of-town visitors. There are reports that Holmes hired and fired numerous crews during the construction period so that they wouldn't be able to figure out what he was really up to with that building. The building was originally two stories high, with storefronts including a drugstore on the ground floor and apartments above. Holmes went on to add a third story, and he had a secret body disposal chute planted in one of the upper rooms which led down to the basement where he kept an incinerator. Once the building was completed, the story goes that Holmes began placing classified ads for jobs for young women, as well as advertising the hotel as a place to stay. The story goes that hotel employees and guests were also required to have life insurance policies, and Holmes himself paid the premiums provided that they list him as the beneficiary, according to the Crime Museum account. Soon afterward, many women started disappearing, the story goes. When the World's Fair came to Chicago, drawing tourists from around the world, Holmes Castle was billed as the World's Fair Hotel. Inside Holmes's castle, the story goes that the rooms could not be locked from the inside of the room, only the outside. Everything back in those days was lit with gas lamps, and it's said that the connections to the gas lamps were outside the room set up in such a way that Holmes could turn on the gas and asphyxiate people at will in their rooms. Sabelsky notes that there are reports that the building also had a lot of strange oddities to it when it was built. There were doors and stairwells that led to nowhere, and hidden enclosed rooms throughout the building. Stories claim that parts of the walls moved, and, as mentioned, there were chutes that led down to the basement. In a December 1943 article for Harper's Magazine, Writer John Bartlow Martin used the most gruesome terms to describe that basement. He wrote, The cellar was perhaps the most remarkable section of the building. It was fitted with operating tables, a crematory, pits containing quicklime and acids, surgical instruments, and various pieces of apparatus which, resembling medieval torture racks, never were satisfactorily explained. Some thought Holmes used these appliances to wring from his victims the whereabouts of their wealth, Others said he used them in experiments which he hoped would prove his pet theory that a human body could be stretched indefinitely, a treatment that, ultimately, would produce a race of giants. Holmes sometimes destroyed the bodies of his victims completely, sometimes, aided by a needy skeleton articulator who answered his advertisement in the paper, he stripped the flesh from their bones and sold the skeletons to medical institutions. 
There are claims that Holmes killed as many as 200 people, although when caught, Holmes confessed to just 27 murders. Holmes later left Chicago and found his way to Texas, and then to St. Louis, where he was arrested and jailed for a swindling operation involving the sale of stolen horses. While in jail, the story goes that Holmes engaged his cellmate, Wild West outlaw Marion Hedgepath, to set up an insurance scam where Holmes would take out a $10,000 policy on his own life and then fake his own death. Holmes tried to take out the policy after being released on bail, but the insurance company became suspicious, so Holmes instead went to Philadelphia and concocted a similar scheme in which his longtime business partner, Benjamin Pitzel, would be the one to fake his own death, but Holmes actually killed Pitzel and went on to kill Pitzel's three children. The bodies of daughters Alice and Nellie were found buried in Chicago, and the body of son Howard in Indianapolis, multiple accounts say. He was tried and convicted of Ben Pitzel's murder and was hanged in a public execution at Moyamensing Prison in Philadelphia on May 7, 1896. There were a lot of people who were glad to see him go. So of course you wanted to know about the ghost story. The basement of the post office that now occupies the murder castle site can be very creepy, one local tour guide says. They report hearing sounds or seeing shadow figures. There is a portion of the basement of the current building that crosses over to a section that would be underneath the grassy area to the east. That section of the basement reportedly looks much older, and many people believe it would have been part of the original basement for Holmes's murder castle. Now to Massachusetts. Here are some excerpts from an article titled, Legend Trippers, the Keepers of the Bridgewater Triangle, Taunton, Massachusetts. We have cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman to thank for naming the mysterious 200-square-mile area of Massachusetts and beyond known as the Bridgewater Triangle. But in the decades since, a handful of current and former paranormal investigators, folklorists, and legend trippers have stepped up to further the legend. These dedicated writers have devoted their time as hobbyists to recording and investigating reports of UFOs, Bigfoot, ghosts, and other paranormal phenomenon in that area, in an attempt to help themselves and others understand the strange occurrences. Sometimes they will go legend tripping, simply going out to places where hauntings and sightings have been reported with little equipment hoping to see something, while other times they will conduct full-blown investigations using apps and equipment to try and pick up signals from the unexplained. Many also record the experiences of others, turning them into books, TV shows, or blog posts, and some, like Tim Weisberg, 42, digital managing editor of WBSM Radio and host of Spooky South Coast, even do live investigations on radio, devoting an entire episode of a show to investigating the Bridgewater Triangle once a year. Folklorist Chris Balzano, who has written several books on the Bridgewater Triangle, lived in the famously haunted Charles Gate Hotel building in Back Bay while he attended Emerson College, which owned the building at the time. He said his particular experiences are some of the most quoted. How many coincidences does it take before you say... Something unusual is going on here, he said. Paranormal investigator Chris Pittman, 41, started investigating UFOs in high school when he joined some UFO study groups, which eventually led him to start investigating other types of phenomena in the triangle, believing they were connected. I think there's a lot of hubris in the assumption that we know everything about the world around us, especially when people in every community are constantly reporting experiences that seem to fall outside of our understanding, he said. There is something compelling about claims of the paranormal, even if we don't believe them. The fact that the witnesses insist their fantastic-sounding accounts to be factual is itself worthy of attention. Jeff Bellinger, 46, 
writer and researcher for the Travel Channel's Ghost Adventures and co-creator of PBS's New England Legends, got into the paranormal as a newspaper reporter seeking out feature stories about hauntings. He said he was quickly hooked and moved into working for TV as well as writing books and podcasting about his research. Investigating the paranormal means asking the biggest questions humans have ever asked. What happens after we die? Are we alone in the universe? Do we know every creature who walks the earth with us? He said. It may surprise you, but most of these investigators don't care whether or not people believe in the Bridgewater Triangle. They're more interested in helping people understand their strange experiences and exploring the unknown for themselves. In fact, many say it takes a personal experience to believe in the paranormal and the Bridgewater Triangle. And as long as people keep experiencing strange phenomena in southeastern Massachusetts, these people will be there to see if it's an everyday occurrence or something that needs further investigation. Credit Susanna Sudborough at thetauntongazette.com. And last but not least, grab your camping gear. We have the eight best places to see Bigfoot right now. If you're dying to get a look at one of the most notorious cryptids, the Travel Channel consulted data from the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, the BFO, and found eight places where you're most likely to catch a glimpse of one of the large, ape-like creatures said to roam the woods across North America. A combination of terrifying eyewitness accounts recently uncovered anthropological evidence and a possible government cover-up of a Bigfoot being held in captivity prove that we still have a lot to learn about this mysterious creature. These new findings lead to a hunt for the legendary primate using the most cutting-edge science available, which produces shocking DNA evidence of its existence. After analyzing the 23,000 sightings across the country, Travel Channel has determined the eight states with the highest likelihood of having your own Bigfoot encounter. And they list the states by order of sightings, the most being in the state of Washington, with 2,032 Bigfoot sightings. For the absolute best chance of spotting Bigfoot, head to Washington State. With a whopping 2,032 sightings and counting, this is the world's most active region. The most popular places to catch a glimpse include the Blue Mountains, Okanogan County, or better yet, Ape Canyon, the locale of one of the most aggressive Bigfoot encounters ever recorded. In 1924, a group of miners reported being attacked by multiple Sasquatch, which allegedly threw rocks at their cabin and tried to break in. Years after the notorious attacks, an experienced skier vanished near the very same locale. Making these events even more intriguing is the fact that native legend has long told of a species of ape men living on nearby Mount St. Helens. Number two is the state of California, with 1,697 Bigfoot sightings. A California sighting is where the hairy cryptid got its name. In 1958, a construction worker named Jerry Crew stumbled upon massive footprints in a dirt road. He made casts using some of his construction equipment, and eventually, the story reached the media. The newspapers named this new creature Bigfoot. The best places in California to find Bigfoot? North of the commotion and chaos of San Francisco lies a quieter and less developed part of California, known more for its remoteness than anything else. This sleepy part of the country is filled with winding roads offering unobstructed ocean views, miles of secluded hiking trails, and isolated coastline communities. Take a short drive inland and you'll reach a handful of vast state and national parks where towering trees started growing more than 700 years ago, long before Western Europe ever set its sights on the American continent. This easy-going part of Northern California may seem a bit under the radar, but there's one very famous celebrity who calls this place home, and that's Bigfoot. 
first spotted in 1958 in Willow Creek, Bigfoot, lovingly known around the world as Sasquatch, Yeti, or even Skunk Ape, if you're in the Florida Everglades, has been spotted most frequently in Northern California than anywhere else in the country. If you're feeling the need to do a little Sasquatching yourself, legend trippers, check out these 10 off-the-beaten-path destinations near California's Lost Coast. Though exploring these locations won't guarantee a sighting of Bigfoot himself, it will guarantee plenty of remote, beautiful places to commune with nature in rugged and remote Northern California. This is posted by Fodors.com. You can start with the Willow Creek Bigfoot Museum and learn all you can about the ape-man and the myth before you start your search. And they guarantee that you'll find a Bigfoot, at least a 25-foot-tall Bigfoot statue that they put outside, which makes it clear who the museum's star really is. Second best place, the Hoopa Valley in California, which is the home of the Hoopa Indians. Bigfoot has been the staple of their legends for centuries. And if you're a camper, the Tishtang Campground includes several waterfront campsites along the Trinity River in the heart of Hoopa Valley Bigfoot Territory. Another one is the Orleans and Six Rivers National Forest. The small town of Orleans, California is completely surrounded by the Six Rivers National Forest, so it's prime Bigfoot stomping ground at every turn. It's also closest to the site of the infamous Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot film from 1967. Even non-Bigfoot aficionados will have seen this short clip captured by Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin, which shows an unidentified creature walking into the woods as it stares back at the camera. For the best chance for spotting the ape-man himself, cruise the 89 miles of the California Bigfoot Scenic Byway, which goes past many of the most popular Bigfoot sighting locations. This remote two-lane road claims to have the most sightings of Bigfoot of anywhere in the country. That's the Bigfoot Scenic Byway. It crosses through a variety of national and state-protected lands. And even if you don't spot Bigfoot during your drive, you can stop and pose by the 20-foot-tall sculpture of Bigfoot when you arrive in Happy Camp, California, at the end of the byway. Runners-up, the Marble Mountain Wilderness. Redwood National Park. The Bigfoot Motel in Willow Creek. The Bigfoot Trail, which is a 360-mile trail which crosses through many of the Northern California Sasquatch regions finally ended in Redwood National Park. To do the entire trail can take you several months to complete. The last two, the Klamath River, which hosted one of the most famous and violent Bigfoot encounters in recent times, and it happened along that river in Scott Bar, California in the late 1990s, where a college-aged woman on a solo camping trip alleged that the Bigfoot dragged her tent through the woods while she slept, then chased her to the car where she managed to escape. For those not brave enough to risk their own Bigfoot encounter by camping, you can take a Bigfoot rafting tour along the river. And lastly, the Jackson Demonstration State Forest, which is on the southern portion of what they call the Lost Coast and lies in Mendocino County. And that area is known for its trendy microbreweries, free-spirited artists, and of course, outdoor recreation in the redwoods. Since 1970, there's been more than a dozen reports of Bigfoot in Mendocino County, including plenty of Class A visual encounters, if you're hoping for your own tete-a-tete with the big man. Getting back to our states, Pennsylvania has had 1,340 sightings. The legend of Bigfoot has baffled many people, and now again, a footprint measuring 17 and three-quarter inches long was discovered Sunday, August 26, 1980, at a residence in the Commonwealth Township area in Johnstown. A very well-defined print was left behind, if indeed it was Bigfoot, plus a left print was found eight feet away in a more wooded area. 
along with the footprints, reports of strange noises and a very unusual but strong odor, went with the account of the episode. The Appalachian Mountain Range has a high number of Bigfoot sightings. With hundreds of miles of vast forest, it's a prime space for a large animal to go undetected. One of Pennsylvania's most interesting cases involves a resting mountain biker who thought he was watching the back end of a bear as it rummaged through a downed tree. The biker's curiosity turned to shock when the animal stood up. What he thought was a bear was actually a giant, seven-foot bipedal creature covered in black hair. Then there's Michigan with 1,131 Bigfoot sightings. Michigan may be more famous for the legend of the dog man, but the state also has a high number of Bigfoot sightings. Some of the highest amounts of Bigfoot activity is near the Sene National Wildlife Refuge in Michigan's rugged Upper Peninsula. One eerie report comes from a mother who was driving with her young infant. She pulled over for the night in a picnic area, only to be awoken by a foul smell. When she opened her eyes, a large hairy creature was staring at her child through the windshield. There's a wake-up call. And believe it or not, New York, 1,068 sightings. Whitehall, New York, near Lake George, has long been known as the Bigfoot capital of the East Coast. In fact, the area has so many Bigfoot sightings that they named Bigfoot the official town animal. It all began one night in 1976 on rural Abair Road. A few teenagers saw a giant hairy creature that they claimed charged towards them. They ran back to town to get help from police, who also saw the creature. Because of the sheer number of sightings that night, it lends credibility to the legendary Abair Road incident. Abair Road spelled A-B-A-I-R. I hope I'm saying it right. It might be A-Bear. Our next state, Ohio, with 1,042 sightings. The eastern half of Ohio is teeming with Bigfoot sightings. Locals have reported numerous sightings of what they call the Grassman, a large ape-like creature that has been spotted in the hills and forests of Ohio's Appalachian Plateau. The state is also home to the famous Ohio Howl, a hair-raising recording of a deep voice screaming and howling into the night, believed to be the call of a Sasquatch. Even more intriguing, years after the first recording, the howls were heard again. Now to the West Coast in Oregon with 1,009 sightings. Much like neighboring Washington, Oregon is one of America's Bigfoot hotspots. One of the most convincing accounts from Oregon comes from a psychiatrist who is vacationing with his family at Oregon Caves National Monument. As they left the caves, they began hearing strange howls coming from the forest. Soon after, they actually watched a Sasquatch running through the trees. Then there's Texas, 806 sightings. East Texas, especially the areas that border Oklahoma and Louisiana, is the site of countless Bigfoot reports each year. One of the most horrifying encounters comes from a hunter in Panola County. That witness claims that while he was hog hunting, he watched a Sasquatch leap out of the woods and grab one of the hogs. The Bigfoot began making loud whooping noises, which were met with more howls from somewhere off in the distance. Before walking back into the woods, the creature stared directly at the hunter and growled. And that's our story. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Reviews are always appreciated, thank you, as are our Patreon supporters. I know you're all getting pounded daily by request for support from one direction or another. We do have a lot going for us here at 1001 Stories Network that makes us unique. You can learn a lot of history through our stories, which of course makes you very intelligent, as does listening to our 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales and our 1001 Stories for the Road, where we keep our long-format stories like Treasure Island. 
"'and for listeners that enjoy solving mysteries, "'we have 1,001 Sherlock Holmes stories. "'We offer over 1,400 episodes free, 24-7-365, wherever you listen to podcasts, "'and we always have something new and interesting. "'And safe for the family, by the way. "'All we ask is that you take a few minutes to visit us "'at patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork "'and pledge a few dollars each month "'to help us to 2001 Stories and beyond. "'And as a bonus... You'll get hundreds of ad-free episodes when you join, plus early bird episodes for upper tiers. Become a Patreon supporter, and you'll feel good about yourself. That's patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. Thank you. We'll be back next Sunday night. Until then, everyone stay safe, and we'll be back soon.